I'm Michaela Pogner, Associate Editor of Strip-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. I encourage you to subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing allows you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. Thanks to TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting this podcast series. Want to do more in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. It also nets $20,000 more incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your ROI and purchase TerraSim for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. As you're planning for the 2022 growing season, it never hurts to reflect on lessons learned in past years. That's what we're doing in today's episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast. This week, I'm revisiting Strip-Till Farmer's top five most played episodes of 2021 to share highlights from conversations that resonated most with other strip-tillers. Some are even among the most listened to episodes ever since we started this podcast in 2016, including our number one episode of the year, Biological Farming with Gary Zimmer. Zimmer is known as the father of biological farming, a system in which farmers work with nature to create healthy mineralized soils to produce pest and disease resistant crops while reducing chemical inputs. Let's join this lively conversation as Zimmer recalls a philosophy that completely changed his farm. Harry Reams was a doctor out of Florida. Him and Dr. Albert, some of the, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, biological farming was really on a roll. And then chemicals came along and it got set on the back burner for 50 years. But he kept saying, if you really truly have a biologically active soil, you won't have earthworms. And everybody kind of booed him and laughed at him, but God, I think he was right. And so now we completely changed our farm. We don't take off any corn stalks. We only milk 100 cows. And we take our hay off of certain fields and most of that where we make hay, we leave it close to home because we don't want, if we got manure to haul back, I don't want to haul manure. And so, uh, so anyway, all the straw stays. When this rye is combined this summer, the straw stays, the corn stalks there from last year. Now we got all this complex carbon. What do you think is happening? Earthworm populations are growing and our organic matter is going to go up. Because now we're farming for that. What are you farming for? I was at a guy that's got 500 acres of hemp and he's asking me about growing corn and he's got a thousand acre farm. And I said, ah, uh, I'm confused. If you're going to make $20,000 or $30,000 or $50,000 an acre growing hemp, why are you pissing around with corn and beans? Why don't you take one year soil building and one year hemp? Why don't you spend that year putting in cover crops and minerals and putting on manure and getting it ready? Vegetable producers do this all the time. In Washington, D.C., there's, uh, there's Potomac Farms, 50 acres of vegetables. That's a million dollar CSA. 25 acres getting ready to farm and 25 acres farming. It's too damn much work. And vegetables are hard on soils. You're putting radishes, then you till it, and you plant this, then you do that, and that, and it's a lot of tillage. It beats up soil for that year, but you gotta give it a rest in the next year. If I was gonna do hemp at $20,000, there's no damn way I'd throw corn in my rotation. So we've looked at all these things. When we take on this new land, like I, we just took some on over by us, three to $500 an acre on fertilizer. 
in two years to get it organic. And for two years, nothing but cover crops and minerals and getting those minerals in a carbon biological cycle. So we might have five to $700 an acre in it before we start to farm it. Uh -huh. But then we've already fixed it. And from now on, we can go bumper crops with just a small amount of inputs. You see, if you don't ever fix it, you struggle to get a halfway decent crop and the weeds take over and you get a poor crop, you don't have any money. If you just bite the bullet and fix it, now every land doesn't need to be fixed. I said, the farm I tell guys that you want to buy, you got to buy the farm from the dairyman that went broke by buying too much fertilizer. That's the farm you need to buy. <laughs> and now just grow cover crop. Oh, all you do is bring out healthy. Already got lots of minerals. Yeah. So this farm right here, we make money growing corn. This is a kind of a year off. Someone says, well, you aren't going to make any money in that rye. And I said, no, you gotta look at the system. We're one year corn, one year soil building, one year corn, one year soil building, and we combine rye if there's some to combine. That crop fails, we don't care. So I got the grain elevator, so we got a cleaner. So we'll have about, we got about five, 600 acres of rye this year, just like this. Now, about a third of it following sweet corn and seed corn got planted in October. The rest of it got planted, this got planted in December. And what do you see down below? Lots of clover and lots of alfalfa. So, this was then last fall. We came out here and took the fertilizer spreader, and we, we normally see the bushel and a half where we drill it in, which we prefer. This is three bushel an acre, just bulk spread. And then we came in March. My son can do 250 acres in the forenoon with a four wheeler and a cedar on back or a side by side, puts the it holds about 500 pounds of seed, 25 miles an hour flying across these fields, spin the seed on in March on frozen ground. And that's kind of what you get, clover, alfalfa. There's four different varieties of clover in here, and then there's alfalfa. So they also put on March, and the rye was put on in December. Now, the other fields were done drilled in, and that was planted in October, the rye was. But it was done on the same concept. We don't make any money on rye anymore. 40 bushel an acre and $10 a bushel is $400 an acre. But we, rye is just something in, to give us this cover crop to give us our nutrients to grow corn. We grow seed corn. We make a lot of money growing seed corn. We get the first contracts. Right? We have those guys, we have our target average on seed corn is 40 bushel, of which we get about $2,000 an acre. And they bring the seed and they harvest it. We got to cultivate and plant and all these kinds of things and detassel it. But anything over 40 bushel, we get another $40 a bushel. Last year we had some 70 bushel, some 84 bushel corn. Now you can put a pencil that sucker all day long. So, so anyway, that this is uh, how it farms, and this will be seed corn next year. And we can probably net $2,000 an acre on it. And this year, we probably won't make any money. You divide that out, $2,000 next year, maybe like see a conventional corn, 200 bushel corn, and we get $10 or $9 a bushel, you know, $1,800 an acre. And this year, we get $400, $2,200 over two years, $1,100 a year, and then we got our expenses. We have nothing in this except seed. Now someone said, well, that clover seed. Yeah, we get $40 an acre on clover seed. We spend on average $40 an acre for seed. Cover crop seed and everything else. Like I said, that's our fertilizer. That's our whole fertilizer budget. So that's why this year now, when the rye is combined, all the straw and everything will stay here. Whatever rye seed we get, we take down the, we, use, we need about quite a bit ourselves because we got six, 700 acres of rye. So we need a couple thousand bushel ourselves. And then uh, we'll flail mow this down to make sure no weeds go to seed. And then last fall, there'll be weeds in it, but see, it's in August, we flail mow it, so the weeds aren't gonna be going to seed, they freeze, you'll see them out in here, some weeds that make, there's no seeds in them, and the clover and the alfalfa will be this tall. So now we're feeding earthworms, and now we got all these residues, and now our organic matter increase. And see, what are the rules to soil health? First, you gotta feed and create living roots in the soil. Mm -hmm. Look around, that's what this farm is. Then you gotta feed them. 
You can't, you can't have just corn stalks and soybean stuff. Oh my gosh, you're going to get bacteria fed. And then, and then and a lot of guys aren't no-tilling because you get such a crust on top there. I just got to breathe. Those are living live worms. They got to breathe. That's why all the residues shallowly worked in. We're real believers in shallow incorporating residues. That's what all these tools are meant to do. And I don't mind cutting a slot to make sure that, because I can't let it get water out because they drowned. And then we run big, deep rippers. Our rippers just cut a slot. We go down 13 to 15 inches deep with these tines. It just looks like you cut a slot in the ground and they're 20 inches apart and they pick it up. So what the no-till guy taught us is you can't plow, dig, and disc every year, every acre, you'll destroy soils. But that's extreme. What the strip-till guys, because the no-till guys, a lot of guys failed doing that because they, they weren't ready. You got to earn the right not to till. You just can't stop tillage for crying out loud. You know what failure looks like? Your ground is hard and dead as my driveway. You're going to quit tillage? That's the last thing you need to do. Why don't you feed and get your saw right first and then quit tillage? So the strip till guys, they taught us. It's 10 degrees warmer in that little strip. But in that zone, the soil warrior. Are you familiar with the soil warrior? That was developed by one of my customer friends from Minnesota, Mark Bauer. Fairmont, Minnesota, built that. And he used to run with, Ray Rawson's a good friend of mine, the Rawson strip till guys. Okay. I got to know all those guys really well. Uh -huh. Anyway, Mark had stones at Fairmont, Minnesota. So he built that rolling blades and tines. And even though they got little fingers on them, that was all designed with John Deere equipment. He couldn't afford to take it to market. He had to sell the company. Environmental Technologies bought it. And it had those rolling blades, so it didn't rip up stones. And it had containment blades on the outside. You could take your penetrometer, and boy, it made a huge difference on getting roots there. So the, the strip till guys said, uh, you got to have, you got to be able to grow deep roots, and don't you dare tear up middle zone. You know, you want to the top two or three inches. But middle zone, all the decaying roots in the earthworm channels. Is, so chisel plowing does as much damage as moldboard plowing. And they say, oh, I chiseled and I did no till, but see, both of them tear up middle zone. Leave the damn middle zone alone. But fence bones rots here, and you ain't going to the top two or three inches. Put all those residues in there, make sure it can breathe, water soaks in, and all those kind of things take place out here. And then the little earthworm channels and the dead decaying roots are tubes for the roots to go down. Well, the tiller radish out here, that's you know, Steve Groff, they did a measurement, a half inch circle around that root is really high in nutrients because it, the plant takes half its photosynthesis and feeds the bacteria. And then when that spews out, guess where they live? Right around the roots. So if your next crop is going down that, and the earthworm channel is what, seven times higher in phosphorus, 11 times higher in potassium than the ground ate its way through. So that root can go down an earthworm casting or down a different decaying root. It's tapped into different soil than your salt test says you got. They're not the same. See, that's why he mix it all together. What's homogenized out here? Uh -huh. right, I see I went, uh, I'm a dairy guy, and these guys in Arizona sent me a salt test, and it was 14% sodium. And I said, you can't grow alfalfa, it's 14% sodium. Then I stood in the alfalfa field, and it was really, really nice alfalfa. So I went to Philip Brocks at the university here in Madison. He's a quite an interesting character. We do work with him. So I went to Phil, and I said, gosh, how is he? He said, he started laughing. He said, what do you think that soil is, homogenized? It hasn't gone through a blender. There's spots in that soil where there's probably 25% sodium, and there's spots that there's 1% sodium. So he said, the roots dodge the 25% and they grow where the one is. So they're not growing in a 14% sodium soil. They, yeah, that's stupid. It's not a homogenized mix. Yeah, you think about that. So we, we do our subsoiling in August, September. If it needs to be ripped with that big deep ripper to make sure we got water 
infiltrated. So water standing is a problem because then it's not soaking in. In some years, if it's too dry or too wet, it doesn't work. It's got to get the right conditions. It's like taking a knife through butter. If it's liquid, you didn't do anything. And if it's really hard, you didn't do anything either because you had to pull it back up because you couldn't get it in. It was frozen. No, it's hard. But if it's the right conditions, you want to get a little bit of sidewall compaction. Otherwise, in the middle of a drought, ground gets cracks in it. Is that subsoiling? Absolutely not. The minute it gets wet, glues it right back like it was. You got to get a little sidewall compaction. And the secret is to get roots to grow down here. And that's what the strip-till guys, in the beginning, those strip-till guys put nitrogen down 15 inches deep to get the roots to grow. What stops roots? Soluble fertilizer. And of course, uh, that's why the farmers used to say, you, in the spring, if you're planting dust in the fall, your bins will bust. A lot of guys planted in dust this spring, which was kind of nice for them. So the, uh, moisture has an impact on soluble nutrients. You put your fertilizer in that and deep, you'll drive those roots down. Once you get those roots down in there, like I said, you leave them alone. So anyway, so that's why we look at this whole thing here as, as, a, as a rotation. Our second most played episode of 2021 is Understanding the Carbon Cycle with Don Rokoski, a USDA soil scientist and leading expert on carbon cycle management in agriculture. Here he explains the carbon cycle and shares his opinions on strip tillage. But in agriculture, when we understand the carbon cycling, where the carbon is captured in the process of photosynthesis, some goes into the roots, some goes to feed the, the microbes and the fungi there, but a good portion of that carbon goes into the ear of corn that we take and either eat or process or feed to cattle. Mm -hmm. And when we capture that carbon, it's also released when we consume it. There's also a release through plant respiration as the organic matter decomposes and it goes back to carbon dioxide. And there's work that shows that when you have a crop and, and some work done in England, they used radioactive tracers to show that when that material was put back on the soil and, and worked in with, with tillage, you lose 70% of the carbon in one year. And so that's what I call the carbon cycling, as, and, and it's the rapid portion of the cycle. So carbon cycling versus carbon sequestration. And so I don't like the term sequestration in agriculture. I mean, we need to do our part for minimizing what goes into the, to the atmosphere from fossil fuels, but I want to maintain food productivity. And the carbon is the energy for this soil plant atmosphere system that produces 95% of the food that we consume. And so when you talk about carbon sequestration, uh, that's good from a fossil fuel standpoint, but from a food production standpoint, I think we need carbon cycling in our agricultural systems. And that's where the little critters in the soil and the concept of living soil is the ones that we're trying to nurture, but they're also helping recycle the nutrients, recycle the carbon to maintain this carbon cycling that's important to us and food production. And so what, what my concern is about the difference is we have people who have been th away from the farm for three generations. And so when they hear the word carbon and they're, they're trying to minimize the fossil fuel that goes in, that says, well, that's bad for the atmosphere. Well, 
carbon from fossil fuels is a big contributor to the to the global warming and the greenhouse effect. But carbon in agriculture is the foundation of our food production system, and it needs to be cycled to get the food to come off of this this living process. And so there's a difference between what we do to sequester carbon from an environmental perspective and what we must do in terms of cycling carbon from a food production perspective. So I've heard you speak about uh, one-third of the carbon being in the grain, one-third in the upper part of the plant, and one-third in the root zone. So when we do tillage and we lose this, is it all coming from the root zone? Uh, Well, we're we're exporting about one-third of it in the grain. Right. And then the one-third of the biomass is there. If we till it in, it goes in and it decomposes very quickly. And, you know, occasionally you might see some corn cobs maybe two years after a corn crop. Right. But most of the time it's decomposed relatively rapidly. And that's the part of the cycling that, that is important to us. The, the one-third of the roots is, the, and there's, there's evidence to show that, that the roots are the most important component or con- contributor to the soil carbon that's, that stays there. Uh, some of that carbon comes in as exudates like sugary materials, and they talk about a a cocktail of exudates that uh, are provided for the whole population in the soil in terms of the microbes and fungi and and, um, all the other ones. But the the roots are also a little more tough and tenuous, and so they seem to last a little longer. And so there's some work that, well, we wrote an article on it, and uh, some Canadian fellows that showed that um, the roots were the largest contributor to the um, accumulation of soil carbon in any any system. I take it you're a big believer in in, in no-till and less tillage, the better. Is that correct? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I'm on a campaign, a one-man band, trying to eliminate the word tillage from our vocabulary. All right. And I'm, um, I'm a proponent of conservation agriculture, the three principles of conservation agriculture. They're also the same three primary principles of soil health and the same three primary principles of regenerative ag. Uh, these two other buzzwords that come on. And I, I, I want to promote a minimum soil disturbance. I want to promote continuous crop residue cover, or residue mat on the surface. And then I want to con- promote diverse rotations and cover crop mixes, because that's the combination that gets the maximum carbon coming into the system. And with the minimum soil disturbance, it's the minimum carbon loss from the soil system. And so I'm a big promoter of no-till or direct seeding, zero-till, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Uh, but I, I don't like the term conservation tillage for what I already explained to you. So. Right. And, and you're right. So you you talked just a minute ago or so about the value of putting after corn harvest and putting those stalks, getting them into the ground. Um, now a no-tiller would pretty much leave them on the surface. Does that make any difference? No, that's the way. I mean, that the, the the piece of research that I quoted, that's what happened in that research. Okay. But I I don't want that residue incorporated mm-hmm. because I want it there on top of the soil surface. Protecting the soil surface from raindrop impact, protecting a soil surface from temperature extremes, 
and just being there as a slowly available source of energy for the the living soil system. If you incorporate it, you maximize residue soil contact and you spread a big banquet table out for all the microbes and the fungi that are chewing on that and it goes out very, very quickly. It decomposes very quickly. But if you leave it on the surface for this protection, it's also a slowly available food source where the night crawlers have to come up and get some of it and drag it back down. The microbes at the interface have, a, have an opportunity to get it, and the fungi can expend, extend some of their filaments into it and get what they need out of it. And so from protecting a soil and having a slowly available food source, uh, those two things are pretty important, and that's why we want continuous residue cover, uh, organic residue cover on, on the soil 365 days a year. What about somebody that uh, no-tills their beans but uses some type of minimum tillage or strip-till on corn? Well, um, strip-till is, is a, um, a, a good practice, and I'm glad to see that there are people doing it. Strip till just minimizes some of the soil disturbance, but not to the ultimate minimum that you can with no no tillage or, or direct seeding. Sure, uh, I'm I'm happy with seeing the people do the strip tillage because it's easier for a farmer to see a small zone of tillage and recognize that there sometimes there is a temperature difference in that thing. Sometimes there's a, um, a increased uh, microbial decomposition and faster nutrient release in that same zone. But ultimately, I, I hope that we can get down to doing it the way Mother Nature does it. She doesn't try to disturb the system and doesn't like to have that kind of, um, of, of disturbance. And so I, I, I'm happy to see the, the guys doing the, the strip till and um, going into less and less volume of soil disturbed. And, and we made some measurements with that in terms of the CO2 release. It, it releases a heck of a lot less CO2 than a deep ripper and the moldboard plow, which is a real benefit from our perspective. Before we get to number three on our 2021 list, I'd like to thank our sponsor, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting the Strip Toe Farmer podcast series. Want to do more in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. It also nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your ROI and purchase TerraSim for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's com slash 2022. Coming in at number three on our 2021 list is Building Soil Health and Profitability with Strip-Till, featuring Rock Creek, Minnesota farmer John Stevens. Let's join the conversation as he discusses how he first started strip tilling and the equipment adjustments he's made over the years. (laughs) 
2015 came and one of the neighbors, they have been dealing with Stripco for a couple years and they're like, yeah, this is really cool. I wonder, so I built the first, you know, 1.0 version of Stripco was an old suck up row crop cultivator. Kind of a heavy unit, not quite heavy enough for strip till. Uh, had we only needed to go down a couple inches to literally just make a berm, it would have worked great. But I wanted to get deep into our profile because of how our soil acts. Our 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 conventional till soil, our unhealthy soil, it, it like we said, it, it compacts. So on a conventional till field, that first driving rain behind the planter. Now the guys are out there with rotary harrows to bust that crust. And in, in July, August, you go with a tile probe and you, you can find that top, in that top four inches, you've got a couple inch crust somewhere. So I wanted to, to get below that and kind of shatter that up. And the cool thing is I did not realize that it would take the whole season for that strip till slot to really heal. So the whole season, that slot stayed very mellow water and air could get in there. If you got a heavy rain, it got away from that seedling really quick. If it turned a little dry, it actually kind of wicked moisture from in between the strips. You know, moisture is going to move where it's dry. And then some the the fertility came along. But so in 15, uh, we built the 1.0 version and we had a cart on there and we just cut PNK in half and sulfur in half, right? Day one, no questions asked, like we're just doing this. University of Minnesota had some trials already. And so we just kind of looked at their trials and then, you know, basic math. We're just looking at basic math of broadcasting. And, and the co-ops used to have charts where if you had the dry on the planter versus broadcasting, they used to have different rates for that. And so we're just like, okay, clearly people understand banding versus broadcasting and just basic math of pounds per nutrients in the root zone. Um, and so we just cut it in half. Uh, the sulfur responded extremely well. I, I was prepared to come back with another dose of sulfur like we normally would do in conventional till. So we didn't have to. We're like, wow, that that really worked. So 2015 was probably one of the better years we ever had in history. And you could see. We had some conventional till, we had a lot of no-till, and we had a little bit of strip till. And you could see the strip till compared to the other two, like, oh my gosh, why did you two even show up? Uh, that, that strip till, he had a gun. It, it, yeah, it, it wasn't even, even a contest. It was like a foot race at NASCAR. <laughs> it, it just, everybody else was just on, on foot and, you know, it was magnificent. I mean, even in late June, it was already several vegetative growth stages ahead. It it left that ground running, and and it never looked back. Did you get uh, all of those planted basically at the same time and everything? Everything else was the yeah. same? Yeah. Yep, yep. For the most part, everything's within several days. Uh-huh. We don't have, because of our location, once the frost goes out, and, and most years you're not even waiting for the frost to be completely out of the soil. You got to get going. And so we have a really short time frame up front. We didn't talk about this before, I don't think, but we should probably give your location a little bit of context because we said Minnesota, but 
you're actually north of Minneapolis. You're between Minneapolis and Duluth, approximately. Yep. 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 We're we're seventy-ish, right around seventy miles north of the Twin Cities. Uh, on Google Earth, if you look at the maps, we're eleven miles south of where row crops pretty much end. <laughs> to the east, we're 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 the last fields to the east, and then it runs into the old Saint Croix watershed, and you got to go twenty miles across. It's twelve miles to the Saint Croix River, and uh, then you got to get into Wisconsin before you get back to some some farmland. Okay. You get into that old river basin yep. ground and uh so yeah everything's in fairly close but i mean you can see it it's like oh my gosh and all summer long that strip till ground it 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 took all the variability out of the field and I, I i did not expect that i wasn't going into it thinking that or anything that was just a nice surprise like wow look at the, the no-till conventional till that wet spot or dry spot or that hillside or whatever is still up and down, like normal, like my whole life. Like, yep, that's gonna be a yellow spot if it's wet this year, and that's gonna be a brown spot if it's dry this year. And so the one of the greatest ones was on on uh, field number three, was there's a sand knob. And so our normal profile is nine inches of this sandy loam on top of many, many feet of yellow clay. And then there's a spot like God was going to put a fence post there. Like they augered, you know, like this 90 foot diameter auger just punched a hole through the crust and it's just sand. Turn, turn the garden hose on and, and never make a puddle kind of sand. So that spot with conventional till and no till, that spot usually ran 30, 40% of the field average. So on soybeans, a lot of years it was zero to 15 or 20, on a, you know, unless it was a really wet year. And same with corn, it was a, you know, 50, 60 bushel spot in corn. And we stripped to, through that and the rest of the field was like 150, 160. And that spot was 120 or something like that. I mean, it was, it was right there. In fact, that spot did better the first year we strip tilled than uh, in 2013, when it was still conventional corn, the rest of the field, that, that port spot did better than 2013 normal spots in the field. Oh, wow. under, and we're just like, holy crap, we're, we are onto something here. Yet not everybody's field is going to respond like ours. Uh, I talked to farmers that are doing strip till, you know, in the beautiful soils down in Illinois and Indiana. And they don't even run fertilizer on their strip tills because they're like, soil's so rich. We just throw a little bit of this or that out there later in the season. We've got a crop. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Well, that's how the other half lives. <laughs> but it uh, – so it was pretty cool to learn that. So, so not everybody's soil is going to be like that. But for us, it's just like ever, in my opinion. And, and so 2016 come around, we're like – we're strip tilling everything. So we did, we, we strip tilled everything and that pretty much destroyed the version 1.0. And so then I found an old Hineker um, Econo till where it had the chisel plow shanks. And so that was a heavy beast of a row crop cultivator. So all I did was flip the depth wheels upside down, took the berming discs off the DMI disc gripper, welded up some brackets to hold them in the back and uh, welded a, a tube to put a row cleaner in it oh. and boom, we had a strip till 500 bucks, 500 bucks. We had a six row strip till. 
Nice. And we knew that sucker was not getting beat up by rock. You could feel it in the tractor when that thing hit a rock. You, you're pulling a chisel out. And so with the old timers and the landlords, you, you tread lightly because you don't want to tell them that you're doing some kook fringe wacko thing. If you want to win, because I, I already kind of learned that because when you go to the other neighbors, like, yeah, I'm going to strip till this year. They're like, oh, yeah, we're so sorry to hear that. You know, we heard of a guy that tried it one time and it didn't work. So with, with the new landlords at the time, I kind of treaded lightly and they're like, well, what, what's that rig you're pulling around? I said, oh, that's the chisel plow that happens to have my dry fertilizer program from the planter is in the cart. And it's the same chisel plow shank that you'd normally have on a chisel plow, but instead of just blowing the dirt out and leaving this open trench like you would for tillage, I just spun the discs around, pull the dirt in, so I have something to plant on. I said, so that's my dry fertilizer program like you guys used to do, so I don't have to stop the planter. So the planter can just plant on them nice strips that are, are chisel plowed, fertilized, and finished all in one pass. And I can run a lot less fertilizer through there. A conversation with David Hula, the Charles City, Virginia farmer known for shattering corn yield records, was our fourth most played podcast of 2021. In this segment of part one of the series, Breaking Through Yield Barriers with Strip-Till, Hula explains what Strip-Till has done for his corn yields. Because previously, at corn planter, we don't have trash sweeps, but we'd have a no-till coulter. We'd run the hydraulic down pressure from precision planting, and we have the meters, and then we had Dawn Curve Time Closing Wheels. We've been running those since 95, when we first started raising cotton. A John Bradley from Island Experimental Station introduced us to that. Then here recently, we've changed a lot of this stuff, but we had a very good emergence. Then when I look at where we had a strip till, we had a better emergence. I'm like, okay, now that's one way which we're influencing you. And then the next way is how else could we do it was with the fertility side. This year, we've done a lot of strips. We were kind of incorporating some and doing tissue samples. But I did a lot more this year to where we have some strips where we just broadcast all the fertilizer on top with the soil oil, just lifted it up, blew the fertilizer out. So we knew we'd have the same rate. Then we did a strip with 40% less. Then we did a strip with 100% of the same amount of fertilizer. Then we did a strip till rig with zero fertilizer. And then we planted some without any fertilizer and no strips. And I want to say there's probably one more test. It's escaping me now. Compared to emergence, we got good simulation, difference in emergence. Then we were diligent in that we were waiting until conditions were right. We like to say we want so many GDUs in a five-day forecast before we start planting. This year, we started out pretty decent. And then we kind of got a cool spell and we stopped the planters. How many of y'all are going to stop a planter? Once you get started, you just want to keep going. But then we stopped the planter because we were waiting for conditions, right? Because we know the value of that uniform emergence. Then we got started again, and then we stopped again. And then we finally finished up. But we noticed wherever we ran the strip-till rig, we had more uniform emergence than where we had air on no-till, even when we were waiting for conditions to be right. 
a much better seedbed preparation. There's no residue in the seed trench. We feel really good about that, but we're also doing a good job in our no-till environment, but it just enhanced. But what I was getting at in reference to the plots, we've been pulling a lot of tissue samples, and the first several tissue samples, I don't start tissue sampling until we're at that V2 to 3 stage, and then I know the V2 stage, we're not getting any, not much good data, but I'm still kind of pulling some samples. Then as it goes along, we were noticing, irregardless of what tillage system we had, we had so similar tissue levels, whether it was no-till, whether it was strip-till, whether it was strip-till with fertilizer and without fertilizer. Why do you think that way? We were still putting on the same amount of starter. We didn't deviate from that because that is the most important component that we can do when the planter pass is being made outside of getting uniform depth and spacing. It's getting that fertilizer out. So we didn't see a difference. Then after about three sets of samples, we started seeing a little bit of a difference in fertility where we had the strip till being higher with the fertilizer than without. Then we started comparing, all right, where we did a 40% reduction so we were only applying 60% of the fertilizer compared to 100% of the fertilizer. Hey, we weren't seeing a big change there. So that's kind of gotten me excited. Now we're continuing to pull them. We're still collecting data. We haven't finished this season up. So hopefully if I get invited to be part of the strip till conference in 2021, then we'll have some data we can share because we'll have some yield data. And fortunately, that particular farm is not burned up. We had a longer season corn hybrid planted there. It's been able to capture some of these later rains. We're not going to see any 250 bushels corn, but I hope we'll be in that 150 on up range. So we'll get some good yield data. It won't be like irrigated and very consistent. But back to how can we make more dollars raising our corn? Strip tilling is helping us because I see where we can reduce our fertilizer. So that's helping reduce our fertilizer bill. But then it's also allowing us to kind of fulfill that environmental equality, being a good steward. Because as a grower, we're the first environmentalists out there. We've got to protect the soil that we have. So that strip till is allowing us to do that. And finally, rounding out our top five list is Jason Federer's Organic Modified Strip-Till System. Let's listen in as Federer talks about his transition to organic and his cropping rotation. We started out with one 90-acre field. It's actually um, a, a friend of ours knew that I wanted to farm organically and this was when my dad was still alive and and uh you know had this field and uh came to us with it and, and it was it was ready to go i mean he'd already transitioned it oh i see it was ready for its first organic crop and uh -huh. it's kind of a no-brainer yeah <laughs> and it's uh it's about you know, 12 or 15 miles away and uh so it worked out well for my dad because if it was a failure he didn't have to drive by it every day and look at it <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, it was kind of neat because he was a little reluctant at his age to want to get back into organic because he'd been there and he knew what kind of work it took, sure. you know. And and after we started doing that, he started transitioning another 80 acres right by the home, oh, the house okay. here. Oh. I don't know if it reignited that in him or, or not, but I guess it was, we were kind of all on board then. You know, that, that year's crop was a complete failure. We had 30 inches of rain in June. I mean, it was wet for a month, which you can imagine on organic was it just weeds, you know, mm -hmm. we had to destroy it, but oh. you know, you, you can't change that. Yeah. And, and uh, 
you know, and, and it was a good, I guess, uh, experience to see what, uh, there were some things, uh, fertility wise that weren't going to work that we saw. So, uh, you know, we went from 90 acres to, uh, 170, added another 80 the year after that. And I think the, the next year he passed away and I, I, I had my hands full, so I didn't transition anymore that fall. Um, but the year after that, I did another 160. And I believe the year after that, I threw another uh, thousand in, give or take, maybe not full thousand, maybe 700. Um, and that's, that's where I'm at now. I think like 11, 1200 that's fully, you know, they're certified. And then uh, whatever year it would have been, 19 maybe we had non-gmo everything before um, on our conventional and uh non-gmo beans are just not fun i mean to you know it's i I got to the point it's like you know what i'm i'm doing almost as much work on these as organic why not just be you know why why am i fighting it Uh i'd already had i guess enough years and that i was comfortable with with organic yeah that i just decided you know what i'm throwing the rest of it in i don't want to have a split operation anymore and multiple managements and and you know i'm not saying it it was without any bumps in the road but but overall i'm happy with it and so your entire operation now is certified organic it's all uh finishing up transition there's uh oh close to a third of it is certified and the rest of it will be come harvest of 22. so what sort of cropping rotation are you looking at right now um which year in which field (laughs) that's that's probably one of the the most commonly asked questions i don't have one rotation and it's it's changing all the time i guess there's a lot of factors a a lot of it is just what actually works with agronomics the workflow and then the economics too it's, it's awful hard to try to grow something you can't sell, you know, or, or be profitable at. We went from strictly corn beans and maybe a little wheat, you know, years ago, other than cover crops. We've been cover crops for quite a long time now. Yeah. This last year, I think I had about 10 different crops. And this year, if I figure them out, probably close to that, maybe a couple less. Oh. So for, for corn, um, most of my corn this year was actually popcorn. And then... Uh, Oh, we've got uh, cereals, oats, wheat, rye, barley. We, this is our first year for barley, so we'll see how that turns out. Um, we did sunflowers this year for the first time. That That's one I, I think is a good fit for us. We did uh, rapeseed and canola. Uh, the rapeseed is not organic, the canola is organic. I think it's definitely got a place. It's not a really profitable crop for us. If you want to push the fertility at it, you can get it to perform. But I don't need another crop where I got to push fertility. You know, um, there's if I'm going to do that, I'll go back. To, I'll take a year off and go back to corn. You know, we did uh, did grain hemp last year and the year before, and no, never again. Well, good. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I hate saying never, but yeah. the first year I did it, um, I had some conventional, oh. and the conventional at the time it competed with with uh, three dollars three fifty corn, but <laughs> I never got paid for it. It's still in a bin out here because oh, no. the you know when COVID hit, it, it really screwed with the supply chain. Long story short, you know, but but even that aside, it's a tough one to manage organically, and it's another one that that takes takes some extra fertility. It's about like corn, oh, yeah. and it's like okay, 
why do I want to grow a crop that I know is going to make less than corn mm -hmm. with more work and more risk? You know, part of the other allure of it was, okay, well, what's it going to bring to the rotation? What's it going to do for the soil mm -hmm. and for the life of me? I, I don't know yet. I um, we didn't have an issue with volunteers. Um, but one thing that was really interesting was the first year I had it, it was a conventional field and um, I planted corn around it. I had 40 acres out of an 80 acre field, roughly, that was hemp. And the next year it was beans. Mm -hmm. And I could, you could tell to the line where the hemp was, it was just full of mare's tail. Oh. Um, but where the corn was, not much at all. And, and it was, the, the hemp was clean. It looked really good the year we had it there. Uh -huh. But then the following year, you know, it's just full of mare's tail and beans. And, like I said, I don't know what it adds to the agronomic situation, but that's not the direction I want to go. So. That's it for our top five most played podcasts of 2021. You can listen to all five of the full episodes at striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Were there any conversations that stuck with you in 2021 that weren't on this list? Share them with me by emailing mpaulkner at lessetermedia.com or calling 262-777-2441. Once again, many thanks to TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics for helping to make this Strip Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Faulkner. Thanks for listening.